0: Well, it's an honor to serve this church. I can speak for both Tyler and myself, but none of it would be possible. We couldn't do it on our own without our amazing elders who serve you and pray for you every day, and our deacons, and for all of you who sit in these chairs and serve day after day, Sunday after Sunday, and different things. Uh, We couldn't do it without you. So a round of applause to you as well. Louder. Yeah, that's right. We have such an amazing church. I would say the best church, but I'm a little biased. So, uh, but if you have your Bibles, and I really hope you do, go ahead and grab them. Turn them on if that's what you use. I don't understand why, but go ahead, turn it on, and head on over to Matthew chapter one. We're going to be in verses 18 to 25 today. I'm in Luke. I'm in the wrong gospel here. There we go. Be in your word. It's important, because I could just be making all this up, and you want to hold me to account, right? So have those Bibles open. But we're in our third week of Advent this Sunday, and we're in our third week of our series called Comfort and Joy. And we're going to be looking at these verses in Matthew, but as all Christmas messages, they kind of just serve as a launching pad. We're going to base, we're going to walk through them verse by verse, but we're going to actually be all over the Bible today. So don't worry, some of the Scriptures will be on the screen but if you're fast enough, you can flip there too. Does anyone still have any of the Bibles with the thumb tabs in them? Those are awesome, right? I won all the sword drills in Sunday school with that guy, okay? Uh, but they're they're awesome, so we're going to be all the way through. But we we all have Christmas traditions that we love to do that sort of get us into the Christmas season. Now that we have snow, it finally feels like Christmas to me. It's wonderful out there. I'm praying for more of it. Um, for, yes, for you. For, yeah. <laughs> hey, there's of farmers in here. He said it, I didn't. But we need lots of snow. Uh, But you might have different traditions. Maybe it's baking cookies or watching Christmas movies or listening to Christmas music. I said last week that I love the Christmas season. That shouldn't be a surprise to most of you. Once, you know, the leaves start changing color, it's hard for me to be patient. You know, I would have my Christmas music playing at the end of September if it was culturally accepted, okay? I love Christmas. And there's certain things that we we all do that get us into the Christmas season. One of them for me is Christmas movies. I love them all. I love the good ones, and I really love the corny ones that you know what's going to happen. They're so dumb, but I love them. And one thing I love about Christmas movies is for the most part, Christmas movies have this common theme that runs through them of the transforming power of Christmas. Christmas. Right? So what we're seeing is somebody who's bad, or we can use the language of enemies who are changing into becoming good. Think of uh, uh, the, um, the Grinch for a moment, right? His heart grows a few sizes. Uh, there's some doctors in here. I think you'd die. But his heart grows a few sizes and he can live, or he can love for the first time. Or think of Ebenezer Scrooge for a moment. He finally realizes his greedy ways and his selfish ways, and he becomes generous, and he's sharing his money. He's clearly not Dutch. He's sharing his money, and he's throwing it out to all these people and living a generous life and treating his fellow man better. And these are the kind of movies that we get excited about. Or maybe you like the corny ones where this big hotshot lawyer comes down, falls in love with a Christmas tree salesman who somehow is rich. And, you know, she realizes that she's horrible and she has to move to this small town in Vermont. And, and it's a love story. I don't know. Some, there's some transformation happening. But we also, it reminds us that we also have an enemy. We have a greater enemy, and our enemy is not just when our family comes to our house on Christmas. Our enemy is not just when uncle so-and-so has a little bit too much eggnog at the family gathering. Our enemies are alive and serious in their sin and death. We tend to go through the Christmas season. We don't think about these things. And I'm not saying we need to make those our main focus, but we do worry about other things that are in reality are just small and inconsequential. Like, oh, my cookies cooked a little longer. I baked uh, sugar snap cookies for the first time for the dragons, and I burnt them, and it was the end of the world for me. I was like, we got to stay up later now, Bailey. We got to remix these things, you know. You know, we, we get worried about all these other small things. But we need to understand that if we don't conquer These enemies in our lives of sin and death, they will conquer us. They will defeat us. These enemies will defeat us. But here's the reality about that. We can't defeat those enemies. Nothing we can do. We can't overcome them. We can't conquer them. We cannot in our own power, in our own strength, vanquish the enemy that is after us. And what that points us to, especially around Christmas time, it points us to the fact that we need someone greater. We need the hero of heaven, as the one song says. We need the Savior, Jesus Christ. Because without Jesus, I want you to hear this, every single one of you, even you who have been Christians for many, many years, without Jesus, you will never know freedom from your greatest enemy. You never will. In verse 21 of Matthew chapter 1 today is going to be our foundation verse. It says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For what will he do? It's on the screen. It's not hard. He will save his people from their sins. So as we read through Matthew chapter 1, our little verses today, I've broken it apart in three parts. We see that there's going to be a scandal, and then there's going to be a solution to that scandal and then we are going to see a response. So let's start by reading Matthew 18 to 19, and we're going to start with the scandal. So... 18 to 19, if you have your Bibles, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So what we see here is that there's this betrothal process that's happening with Mary and Joseph. Now, the betrothal process is a little bit different than how we think about the engagement process today. A lot of pastors will just say, well, they were engaged. But there's more to it than that. This was actually a contractual negotiation that was happening. Each party would have met, meaning their families. They would have been money involved in this meeting. It was more like a business dealing. I know, very romantic. Um, Adapt would have been agreed upon and paid, and then the woman, in this case Mary, after all that was kind of happening, she would then live with her parents in her parents' home for a year, and that's where we're at in the in this story. She's still living with her dad and her mom. She's still at home under the authority of her father, and once the marriage was finalized after that year was complete, she would then move in with Joseph, and then they would consummate the marriage then it would become a marriage in God's eyes and if you don't know what the word consummate is you're too young to be in this message okay so during this time Mary and Joseph when they're still living at home she's still living at home and then Joseph discovers something unexpected Mary's pregnant right and so this is a big issue especially in this culture I know we just gloss over sin in 2023. We don't really care. We don't even bat an eye at it anymore. But this was a big issue. This was a big scandal. And what we don't see in Scripture is the anguish that Joseph must have felt, right? The anger, the betrayal. He's probably sitting back, wait a minute, Mary. We we talked. I talked with your father. We arranged a deal. I committed myself to you, and you were supposed to commit yourself to me. But now you're pregnant. And what we know by reading this, and we've heard this story now hundreds of times, we know that this this baby was placed there. The Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, and the baby was placed there by by God. And and, and when you're reading Scripture, it's kind of like watching a movie, right? You have some privileged information that the other characters don't have at the moment because we're told about it. And I think sometimes because we have this privileged information, we gloss over the emotions that Joseph must have been feeling. He, li- he, he didn't know at this point that this baby was placed there by the Holy Spirit. The only thing Joseph knows is that baby is not mine. Like, we have done nothing to create a baby. So I don't know how that got in there. And Joseph, so he goes through what he's supposed to go through. He's a rational man. Look what it says in verse 19. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, you have to remember, under Old Testament law, when there was adultery that happened, Deuteronomy 22 gives us two scenarios that you can have. If if the woman or, or the man was in the consenting party of the adultery, both of those people would be put to death. Or if the woman was taken advantage of right, by a man, unwilling, then the man would be put to death. Those were the options. However, under Roman rule... The Old Testament laws for decrees of death were actually not being obeyed at this time. Rome wouldn't allow it. There were some they were squeaking through by working the legal system. But for the most part, they were not being practiced under Roman occupation. So Joseph goes to what the best thing he knew he could do, which was a certificate of divorce. And so it says he was a just man, right? He's a righteous man, and he knew things weren't right. That baby's not mine. And these people, they just can't overlook sin. he, He wants justice. So divorce was in order because he believed in justice. But notice there's something else that is coupled with the justice that he wants, and that's mercy. Joseph had mercy on Mary. He said, I was unwilling to put her to shame. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Right? Joseph didn't drag her out into the square. He didn't, he didn't make a huge spectacle about it. He didn't post it all over Facebook or other Instagram things, right? He didn't make it all over social media. He didn't get the judge or the magistrate. He didn't make it a big public trial. No, what he set out to do was grab two or three witnesses under Jewish law and present to Mary a significant, a significant a certificate of divorce because the betrothal process was as binding as marriage. Instead of making this a huge spectacle, he wanted to avoid public shame and scorn, which was undoubtedly she was going to face in the near future anyways. Those around her would be asking her questions. They're nosy, right? Just like your family, they're nosy. Why, why, where's Joseph? Why is he not at this Christmas dinner? Right? Why are you still living with your parents? Why are you pregnant? Right? Like It's not rocket science. They're going to put two and two together that something is not clicking. But yet, Joseph, instead of trying to get even... He resolved to divorce her quietly. There was a hint of mercy in his heart. And so now we move from the scandal. We've we've seen the scandal presented to us. We have to go to the solution. In verses 20 to 23, it says But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph. So what we see is in the midst of this situation, in the midst of Joseph's hurt, his betrayal, I know for myself, put yourself in his shoes for a moment, I'd be angry. But we see God intervenes. We see God brings peace and clarity to a cloudy situation. And God's clarity was desperately needed at this moment. Think of it. We don't know if Mary tried to explain this to Joseph or not, but put yourself in his shoes. Imagine the woman you're committed to, the one you're going to spend your life with, is all of a sudden pregnant. And she's trying to convince you that something happened to her that has never happened before. How many of you go, oh, oh, you should have just led with that. The Lord put the baby in you. Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I believe that. No, if she said anything to Joseph, and we don't know if she did, I'm just speculating, but if she did, Joseph probably thought she was a few fries short of a happy meal, right? She's lost it. So God being God, he is a God of clarity, right? God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. And he does what we have seen God do countless times throughout Scripture, which he speaks to Joseph through a dream. He intervenes and he sends his messenger so that Joseph would know that beyond a shadow of a doubt that this message is from the Lord. This is not just a feeling that Joseph has. This is not some sensation or some tinglies because the worship music was really good. This is not the pizza that he consumed the night before. This is a message from God. It was a dream to steer Joseph and to give him peace and to give him guidance and to give him clarity in the midst of a very cloudy and confusing situation. And we see God do this throughout all of history, through all of human history. We see God intervening on behalf of his people. We see God stepping in. This isn't new. When I was reflecting on this idea of God intervening on behalf of his people, I was reminded of a story that has always brought much comfort and peace to me. And that's the story of God and Moses at the burning bush, right? Moses goes, he, he sees this bush that is burning, another thing that is just wild, it's not being consumed, but it's on fire. And God, what does he say to Moses? He says, I have heard my people. I have seen them. I have seen their afflictions. I have heard their cries, and I'm moved to action. I'm paraphrasing. But I'm moved to action. That's our God, church. That's our loving and merciful and just God. Not only does he see your pain and suffering... Not only does he see what you're going through, not only does he hear your questions of why, not only does he see you struggling with deaths of loved ones and relationships, not only does he see you struggling in the valley of the shadow of death, but he is moved to action on your behalf, and he intervenes into your situation. Amen? It may not be the way that you wanted him to, It may not be the way you desire him to intervene. It may not be the way, if you're anything like me, where you try to tell God how you want things to go, right? That never works. But we know without a shadow of a doubt because it's the nature of God that he is faithful to his people even when we are not. Even when we are not. My heart is prone to wander and I'm sure yours is too. But God's never does. He's always constant to his people. He sees you, and he intervenes in your situation. And then we see Joseph respond in verse 24 to 25. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not, meaning they didn't consummate it yet, right? Not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So now instead of divorcing her, Uh, He has had a 180 change in approach and view to this. Now he is resolved to adopt Jesus as his son. You see, Joseph obeys and follows through and does as the Lord commands him. He names the son as he's supposed to. But here's the thing that's really important as far as God intervening in human history. This right here is an important aspect of the plan of salvation of mankind. You see, in the old prophecies, as it's mentioning here, they talk about the Messiah not just being born of a virgin, but coming from the line of David, coming from the lineage of David. And that lineage goes through Joseph. So if Joseph had gone through with the divorce, it would have disturbed that lineage. Now I know... God is in control of all things. God is a sovereign God and he's not sitting up on his throne, biting his fingernails, wondering what's going to happen. I hope they go to my plan. No, he is working things to his order in a perfect way, but he's intervening here on Joseph's behalf. And Joseph now names him Jesus. And that naming is what is important. By naming him Jesus, the act in Jewish history, the act of a father naming their child is an act of ownership. It's an act, in this case, of adoption. It's saying, you are mine. I am claiming you as my own. You are my son, and with that comes all the benefits of an heir. Now, extend that farther. Comes all the benefits of the heir of the line of who? David. Look at Isaiah 43:1. It says, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. There is something about the naming process. And here we have Joseph naming the son, naming Jesus, claiming him as his own. And with all that, the rights of an heir. Church, we need, a, we need Jesus. We need a Jesus who fulfills all the prophet, prophecies. Jesus who fulfills the Father's plan. We need Jesus to overcome our enemies, to defeat our enemies, because without Jesus, you will never know freedom from your greatest enemy. We have a problem. Mankind has an issue. All of us were made in the image of God, and we were made to be designed for a relationship with God. We were designed to be in an intimate communion with God. We were designed to press into Him and never leave Him and to worship and to glory Him and to have no eyes for any other lover. We were designed for a relationship with God. And even Israel, right? They were designed to be in a relationship with God themselves. God chose them. He grabbed them out of all the nations. And he says, I choose you. I claim you as my own. But you see, the problem is, both Gentile and Jew, we have violated God's holy law. We have violated God. And all sin, every sin, is cosmic treason against a thrice holy God. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all have sinned. So through our first parents, through Adam and Eve, we have all inherited this sinful nature. Some of us might sit back in our comfy chairs today and think, well, I don't do as bad as all those other people do. I'm pretty good. I just do some of those white-collar sins or whatever you want to call them. There might be varying degrees of consequences for all of our actions, but the fact remains the same. Sin, the sinful nature, is a universal thing. It is in all of us, whether it's murder or whether it's adultery whether it's the one that we always think we're going to get away with, which is gossip, when we slander people, when we, call, when we destroy people with our words, when, we, or when we're judgmental, whether it be prideful or stealing, whatever it is, sin is sin. And every single sin is cosmic treason against God. And something we might think, well, some of us might think, well, I I, I do all these good things, though. I I, I work hard, and 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 I do all these good works. These should all counteract all the bad things that I do. I pray as long as I can. I make sure I read my Bible for 15 minutes a day. I go to church faithfully every Sunday. I make sure I volunteer on Sundays. I go to life groups, and so on and so forth. And don't hear me wrong. All those things are good But doing all those things without faith is just sin with a pretty little bow tie on it. I don't care how good you think your good works look, regardless of how good we think they look. The Bible says they are all but filthy rags before the Lord. You can't save yourself. And we can't overcome our enemy of sin without God. We see this also with Israel. They violate God as well. How sick is your heart in Ezekiel 16, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. You didn't get any payment for it. So maybe that's not the text you like to reflect on. That's probably not the one you run to to put on your coffee mug or on your fridge, right? But, it, 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 what, but we tend to look at verses like this throughout the Old Testament. We say, how could you, Israel? How, you've seen God's manifest power. You have seen God rescue. You've seen God pull you through. You've seen God be faithful to you and save you. And yet you sit there and you chase after all these idols and adulterous pagan ways. But if we just hit pause for just one moment, church, and we look in the mirror for just five seconds, we would see that we're not much different than Israel. We, too, prostitute ourselves out to idols in our lives. We, too, prostitute ourselves out to greed and to lust. We go after things that are not worthy of our worship. And we do this in many things when we try to advance ourselves over other people, when we tear down other people by gossiping about them. We look down upon other people when we sit there and we idolize this version of the Western dream and we strive and sacrifice everything to attain it, even our relationship and the gathering of the church. We are just like Israel, prostituting ourselves out. And the worst part about it is we're not receiving any payment for it. We're just doing it for free, like dogs who return to their vomit. Unless you think, hold on, I still think I'm pretty good. I manage my life while well. I work hard at being upright. I'm disciplined. I work very hard at having an everything together attitude. Where Romans 3:23 shatters this. What does it say? For all have sinned, and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All. That's you. That's me. We all have. We're all in the same boat. We all need rescuing. We're all, we have all been held hostage by sin and by death. We all need to be saved. But because of our violation, because of our sinful nation, uh, nature, because of the fall, we have received our just punishment for our sins. What does Paul say in Romans? For the wages of sin is death. Not only does physical death enter into the world, but so does spiritual death. A separation from God for all eternity. things like conflict and strife, we battle with these enemies. We struggle with sin, sins that we know that are wrong, right? Paul talks about this in Romans 7, the things that I don't want to do, I keep doing them, and the things I know I should be doing, guess what? I'm not doing them. I'm paraphrasing again. That's not even the message. That's just a messed up version, okay? We all do things, We all struggle with gossip. We all struggle with pride. We all struggle at time to times with lust. To the married, all I'd have to do is ask your spouse. Right? They know who you truly are. You can't pretend in front of your spouse. You can say all you want. You read your Bible and pray, but she knows you're sleeping in when your alarm goes off. All I have to do is ask your kids. Ask Well, don't ask Levi. He'll tell you made-up stories. But all I have to do is ask your kids. (laughs) Right? Your kids see who you are at church, and they see who you are at home. Right? And the point is that we all fall. We all fail. We all trip up. We all struggle. We all struggle. We all fall short of the glory of God. And we do what we can, and we're going to see this best depicted in a few weeks as we enter into the new year. Right? Uh, every, everyone who goes to a gym knows January is packed Everybody sets resolutions in January. They want to better their lives. They want to set up boundaries and barriers and all these other things. But what happens a month in? They all just fall to the wayside. Why do we feel, though, this need at January 1st or other random times throughout the year that we need to do something to better our lives? It's because I believe that deep down inside of us, we know that there's something wrong. Something needs correction. Things are not working how they should be working. Something needs some grease because they're seized, right? Things are not as efficient as they should be. We know there's a need for an adjustment, for a course change in our lives, and that's because we know, like Romans 7 says, we're a slave to these things, to these things that we don't want to do. We do the things that we don't want to do, and we don't do the things that we should be doing. In death, we try to ward off death as much as possible. And I'm just here to tell you no matter how many anti aging creams you use or what diet promises you an extra year of life, you are still going to die. It's coming for all of us. You just might look better in the coffin than I do. When we experience the death of a loved one, we're reminded of our frailty as humans, we're reminded that our day is coming. I know, what a lovely Christmas message. Spend some time in a in a in a what are those places called? Uh, no, a cemetery. We call it Statue Land to Levi. So I was mixing up. Uh, <laughs> Spend some time in, in a cemetery. I've been, uh, Bailey and I have been going through the cemetery the last couple months, finding some of our original members of this church who are still buried here. Well, hopefully they're still buried here. But uh, that, are, that, that were buried here and, and just kind of dusting them off and, and reading any history that we could learn about them. And, and it reminds you, you're faced right there as you walk through a cemetery that your day is coming but you can't in your own power free yourself from death. You can't in your own power free yourself from sin. You can't in your own power free yourself from your pride, your gluttony, your drinking, your thoughts, your gossip. You can't in your own power free yourself into thinking that I'm going to act a better way, I'm going to think a better way, I'm going to walk or talk a better way. We are in our own power slaves to our sins. We are in our own power cannot escape the sting of death. You can't. There's no way. We need saving because without Jesus, we will never know freedom from our enemies. And we have the solution, and the solution is Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. I know at Christmas time I'm the worst for it too the holidays come we focus on all these other things all the festivities all I don't even want to show you my bank account how many times I bought eggnog you know this last week alone right we 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 celebrate the family coming together and decorations and we and those are all good things do those things especially the eggnog but we neglect that this this step of God intervening is the first part of God's plan in our salvation. He's intervening into human history that God himself took on flesh and dwelt among us. That God, the transcendent God of the universe who created all that is, who sustains all that is, came down and humbled himself, lived a perfect life of obedience, a life that you and I could not live, to live a life that was free from sin, from the bondage of sin, and to live justly and to live righteously in the way that we never could. That's what Christmas is about. He was born to die. He was born to die. He was born for our salvation. He was born for your salvation. Look at Ephesians 2. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, church, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. You see, we deserve our just punishment. Mary, right? The one thing she deserved that Joseph could do as a, right, a righteous and, uh, and justified man was to give her a certificate of divorce, yet mercy in his heart, he determined to do it quietly. And this is kind of the same principle. For all of us, we deserve our condemnation. We deserve our punishment, but God being rich in his mercy, he came and he saved us. God intervened in human history. And we see that in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 21. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. One thing that's important about that text is the he there talking about Jesus is actually an emphatic he, meaning it should better be translated as he and no one else. He and no one else. Nothing else can save you. Nothing else that you can do in your, out of your own strength can make you righteous in God's eyes. Jesus and no other. No other false God, no other discipline, not making sure that you pray every morning or read your Bible for 15 minutes or come to church every Sunday or participate in life groups, all good things, but none of those things will save you. Jesus and no other will save you from your sins. And he does that on the cross. And we celebrate that Sunday after Sunday. Every Sunday should be Easter Sunday. We celebrate that, that, that we remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled for us. May we never forget that. We are justified in Jesus, meaning his perfect righteousness was given to us, right? Luther called it the great exchange. Our sins taken from us, placed on Jesus. Jesus' righteousness from him, placed on us. We got the better deal. Our sins upon him, his grace upon his righteousness upon us. Galatians 4 to 7, 4, 4, you read it. But when the fullness of time had come, (laughs) God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer what? A slave, but a son. And if a son, then you are an heir of Christ. And women, you're, you're in there too. If I can be the bride of Christ, you can be a son of God, okay? All right? Get that? All right. That, you're in there as well. He calls us, though, by name. He remembers us and claims us as his own. Own, And we, we become His sons. We receive sonship and we receive the benefits of a son. We receive the inheritance of Christ. We become heirs. We receive eternal life and he begins to sanctify us. Scripture talks about this in Philippians. He said, He who began a good work, what will he do? He will bring it to completion. That's talking about your salvation. It's not just like you're once saved and then you're good to go. He just hopes, he winds you up like a toy and hopes you make all the best choices. Yeah, you're justified. Yes, you're made righteous. You're made his home. But there's still this ongoing process of sanctification, which I like to call, summarize as becoming more like Christ, where you're changing from one degree of glory to another. But oftentimes, we become complacent in our sanctification. And in those moments, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us grow. Not to become complacent by the power of the Holy Spirit, but to put our sins to death and to become more like Christ. It's not just that God delivers us from sin and death. He does do that, but he also delivers us to something else. He is delivering us to this restored relationship with the Father. You see, the chasm that we could not cross on our own, the salvation that we could not attain on our own power, that relationship has been restored. We are not only saved from our sins, we are not only saved from the punishment that we deserve, but we are saved into, delivered into this relationship with God. His presence with us. His Holy Spirit filling us and living in us. The Holy of Holies right here. Our relationship is restored, and he will never leave nor forsake you. All right, back to Matthew as we begin to close. If you look at Matthew from 30,000 feet, you'll see that it starts off with this idea of God with us, Emmanuel. And that's a theme that penetrates and fills all the pages of Matthew. If we were doing a sermon series on Matthew, we would be pulling this theme throughout all of the gospel, this this idea of God's presence among his people. It's a powerful theme in Matthew. And then you look at the bookend, Matthew 28, what does it say? Lo, I am with you always. To where? To the very end. You see, our salvation, our deliverance from sin and death is a salvation and a deliverance into a relationship, a communion with God in his presence where one day we will bask for all eternity, where we will behold him and be with him forever. It's going to be a beautiful day. I love what R.C. Sproul used to say, when he will personally wipe every tear from your eye. What a beautiful picture. And so when we see what God has done, when we finally recognize our problem, that our greatest enemies are of sin and death, that we see that our only solution is Jesus and his work on the cross, and that that he saved us sinners who couldn't save themselves, the question is, how do we then respond? Well, I know how many of us respond, because I'm in that camp a lot too. We just kind of go on with our days. We don't think on it often. But you see, I think there are five ways that we could be responding as redeemed people The first is we respond in gratitude and humility. Understanding that all of this was done by not our power, not our strength, not out of any of our effort. Understanding that we couldn't make ourselves right in God's eyes. There's nothing that we could have done to make ourselves righteous. There's nothing that we could have done to save ourselves. There's nothing that we could have done to avoid the just punishment for our sins. And that should cause humility. That God, the creator of heaven and earth, the great I am, the ancient of days, the holy, holy, holy God, the one who is and is to come, who has always been, he saved you. He saved you. He came himself and he died for you. The God who creates and stains all, the God who is sustaining is going to one day glorify you. And that should cause immense humility because if I look at my life, and I know if I look at some of your lives too, I know some of you well, right? That should humble us. That God came and saved a dirty sinner like me. I don't deserve it. We should be incredibly humbled by this love, grace, and mercy. It's a gift from God. The second way we can respond is in love. Right, God doesn't just desire empty obedience, right, like just checking off a list. Okay, I prayed today, I read my Bible today, I shared a casserole dish with my neighbor today, check, 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 right? He desires that we love him. Psalm 42, 1, as a deer pants for the flowing stream, so pants my soul for you, O God. We should be desiring God. We should be wanting more of him. We should desire to be close to him, to be intimate with him, to be able to touch and hold and be jealous of that relationship. So jealous that we turn away from all other lovers to the glorious, beautiful one who is Christ. Church, has your heart been so captivated by God that you yearn for more of him? Has it? Reflect on that. Is there a love for God that is deep within your heart? Heart, in your soul, the third way we can be responding is obedience, right? I mean, those who love me, Jesus says, will keep my commandments. It's not that we obey so that we love; it's rather we obey because we love. Obedience is a manifestation of our love for God. So we obey. We follow even when it's a struggle, even when it's hard, even when it goes against the grain of everything we want to do. Think of Joseph in this scenario. He loved God and he was obedient even though he had no clue what was happening. Fourthly, we proclaim. We actually share with those around us the good news of the gospel. And that's probably a struggle for a lot of us here. Sharing the gospel with with people we don't know is hard, and I would actually argue it's harder to share it with people we do know, right? What happens if I share the gospel with my friend? Are they going to think I'm weird? Are they going to lump me in with those weird Christians who stand and picket signs on corners? I don't want to be lumped in with them. What happens if I share the gospel with my friends who I've known all my life, with my family members, are they going to disown me? But if we really believe, if we really understand that our greatest enemies are of sin and death, the only way that those can be conquered is through the death of Christ, and that we receive the gift of righteousness by faith, then we would be proclaiming that to everyone, because what happens if they don't have that? Eternal separation. If you really love someone, wouldn't we do everything we could to share it with? I'm not saying be pushy and shove it down their throat. But let's get creative. Let's go out there and love and, and, and invite our neighbors over. you have to eat dinner every day of the week. Use one of those to have a neighbor over. Pray for them. Get to know them. Let them get to know you. I love the story about Penn Gillette. I don't know if anyone knows who Penn Jillette is. Penn and Teller, they're famous magicians in Vegas. And Penn is a, a staunch atheist And he put out a selfie-style video about now eight years ago, I think. And he was talking about after one of his um, shows, uh, he was signing stuff, uh, autographing things for people. And this gentleman comes up and says, Hey, I just want you to know, Penn, I love the show. I love you. I'm praying for you. And I want you to have this Bible. I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And Penn says in this video, he says that I was struck by his love. I could see that he truly loved God, and I could see that he truly loved me, and he knows I'm a staunch atheist. Penn has very outspoken atheist, very staunch atheist, and he says, I could feel the love for God. I don't believe any of it, but I know what this guy believes, that without God, I have eternal separation. He says, I don't believe that, but I was moved by the fact that he would share that with me, because who wouldn't if you truly believe that? Those were his words. An atheist. Who wouldn't if you'd really believe that? And, and, the, and the amazing thing about it, this guy was just an average person like me and you. He wasn't some super big name or anything. But he made an impact on Penn. And we can make an impact on those around us. We should be sharing the good news with our neighbors, with our communities, with our loved ones. If we loved our friends, we'd be proclaiming the good news because the alternative is far, far, far worse. All of this, everything that we're talking about should be leading us to the fifth response, which is a heart of praise. To be yelling out, go tell up from the mountains in adoration, not holding back. That, that's the only response that we could give. We can't buy God. Right? We can't sit here and try to do all these things to make God more happy or love us more because he already loves you all he can. And that's amazing. He, he doesn't regret saving you. He doesn't regret dying for you. He loves you. He knows you're messed up. That's why he had to come. You can't earn any more of his love. You have it all. You have it all. So all we can do then in response is get on our knees and worship God together. That's why gathering on Sunday is so important. We gather together, we celebrate the life and death and resurrection of our Lord. We proclaim together, we sing together, we worship together, we celebrate together the salvation that we have in Christ. We have been freed. And because of this freedom, you can respond then in gratitude and obedience and love. You can proclaim and you can worship. You can live a life of freedom. We don't have to go back in slavery, church. I know some of us do. There's an ebb and flow in my relationship with God, too, and I'm sure there's an ebb and flow in your relationship as well. Sometimes I'm on fire. Sometimes I'm hot, and I'm ready to go, and then I get cold. My flame starts to die, and we need our brothers and sisters in those moments to say, hey, you're getting a little cold. Let me throw some wood on your fire, but what do we do normally as a church? Hey, you're getting a little cold. Let me dump some water on your little flame. You should be better. You know the truth. I know the truth. I just need some help. Don't dump water on the flame. We ebb and flow, but here's the beautiful thing. Here's the beautiful thing. That Jesus' love doesn't ebb and flow. Jesus' love is always constant. So I want to end with this promise. So if the Son has set you free, which is you sitting before me today and me, you have been freed indeed. That's the comfort. That's the assurance that, that we, that I believe that we have, that even though I ebb and flow, even though God, even though you might ebb and flow, God's love is always constant. Even though I have high moments and low moments, even though you have high moments and low moments, God's love never fails. We are secure in that. We are secure in our salvation because it is, if it was based on my power alone, if it was based on your power alone, yeah, you better be worried so should I but it's not it's based on Christ Jesus conquered our enemies Jesus has overcome because Jesus has vanquished sin and death and because of that we can be assured that one day we will be with him we will he will welcome us home he will wipe every tear from our eyes and we will glory in him forever all because God became flesh and he dwelt among us let's pray Father, I thank you, O Lord, for the Advent season. Lord, I thank you that we can use this time as a focus time to remember that you, the transcendent, thrice-holy God, looked at us and said, I need to make a way, I, I make a way, Lord, for I, I'll make a way for these people to come. It's promised in Genesis, when the, when, the, when the seed from the woman would come and one day crush the head of the serpent and bruise his heel, this wasn't plan B, this was planned from the beginning. As the Bible says, Jesus was crucified from the foundations of the earth. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are always in control. We thank you, Lord, that the sending of your Son is a constant reminder to us that you fulfill your promises. You're not like our earthly parents or friends or individuals who promise a lot and deliver half. You always fully deliver. And we thank you for that. Father, bless this church. Bless these people as they go through the Christmas season, some with loss and some with fresh loss in their life today, Lord. Father, I pray, O Lord, that you would bless them and you would keep them. And God, you would fill them with all peace and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together.